Okay, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to talk about the secret power of lawlessness. That's an interesting statement made in the Scripture. The power of lawlessness. Lawlessness as a power. What does that look like? And what does that mean? So I want to refer to the letter that Paul wrote here into this second book of Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to go into verse 5 and I'm going to read some of this, okay? It says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. He said, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. The holding back is of the man of lawlessness, okay? Who is this man of lawlessness? That would be the Antichrist. What is holding him back from appearing on the world stage and taking power? Okay, we see lawlessness happening. We're going to read this, okay? But what is, was, is restraining the Antichrist from coming to power? He says, And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed in his proper time. The, we're going to talk about that. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. This is 2,000 years ago. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. The lie. What lie? They perish, it says, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth and have delighted in wickedness. Father in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, we ask you to help us to rightly divide the word and give us understanding in it that we can teach this properly and that we can know what the word is saying and that we can be prepared for the day in which we have found ourselves living in. Lord, for this is, Lord, perilous times. And Lord, we just thank you for eyes that can see and ears that can hear. Now help us to be humble in heart and accept what's being said, Lord, and follow you through all things and be ready for the taking of the church, the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. And we give you all praise and glory. And we ask this in Christ Jesus's name. Amen. I can say this, that I am really glad to be a Christian these days, to be to be in God's hands and to be a part of the church is the most wonderful feeling of assurance that the rest of the world doesn't really have right now. After talking with a lot of people on the phone and in, in person, I think we all can agree that there's like a heaviness in the air, an evil heaviness that is in our country that's amongst us. You can feel it. You can feel that there is this wickedness 
that's trying to overcome us or something. It just feels like uh, when, when our world, our country is going so far uh, into sin that it's almost to a point that it can't recover from it. I mean, when, when, when homosexuality and lesbianism and murder and violence and riots and, and, and everything's okay, it just seems like we have turned our back on truth. And we've turned our back on morality. And we've turned our back on basic, simple human rights. You know, it's just like, okay, where are we going if we go that way? And it's, it's brought on a sense of urgency to us, to our hearts, to people that I know, other pastors, other preachers that I've been talking to. It, it's, it's brought on a sense of urgency. My goodness, we got to pray, man. Like no other time before. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those things that's happened to the church is common amongst people. They think tomorrow is going to be just like today. They, you know, we all think that until, until the day suddenly drops upon us, you know, like being caught in a trap, the Bible says, we find ourselves fighting for our lives. All of a sudden, we've let things go and go and go, and we've not really prayed, and we've just kind of think that tomorrow will be the same as today, and nothing's ever really changed, and, and all of a sudden, here we are. We're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden, people are finding themselves, they're wanting, you know, prepping is at an all-time high right now. People are, are buying guns, and they're buying bullets, and they're buying food, and they're buying water, and probably rightly so. I heard one preacher say that I would never advise my, my parishioners to buy a gun. Well, that, that person's a fool. I mean, that's just all there is to it. You have to be able to take care of yourself. Whether that be through... And, I, and that, buying a gun doesn't mean you're a violent person. It just means that you have the means and ability to take care of yourself. Either through hunting or through protection. And you need that. You need to be able to do that. Okay? And nobody should be able to deny you that and disarm you of your basic human principles, your, your basic human needs. But we find ourselves in this world, in this, in this struggle. You know, what's going on in our country is like an epic struggle of good against evil. And that's what it feels like. And it's almost apocalyptic feeling. And it's got prophets prophesying. And people having visions and seeing things and, and, and oh my gosh, what, what's in the balance here? Well, what is in the balance? What is in the balance? Are we going to go that way that says execute babies after the womb? Are we going to go that way? Are we going to go down the way of, of, and you're seeing it more and more being introduced on television where two men are together and that's a happy, that's defined as a happy family? Are we going to deny basic truth because we're being taught and being censored into the fact that we should adhere to that? What's the church's purpose then? The, the, you realize that that is exactly opposite of what the Scripture teaches. We are supposed to rebuke evil. We're supposed to stand against it. Not accept it as being okay. Okay, so then that goes exactly opposite of your biblical teaching. Okay. So the secret power of lawlessness, what is this? Satan's mystery of iniquity. It's already at work in the world as godlessness and godless activities 
are on the increase. It's already going on. Um, so we look at the scripture and it says something's holding it back. What's holding it back? You know, if this right here is the holding back of, of tremendous evil, then what will pure evil look like? If we're living in a time to where the scripture has said that the Holy Spirit and the church is what's holding back the Antichrist's reign. When we are removed, here it comes. So what will hell on earth look like? If, if it gets worse than what it is right now, what will that be? What will that world be like to live in? Um, but the one thing in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1, God has times and seasons for everything and not even the devil can get God off of his schedule. Okay? So in, in, in looking at this and looking at the man of lawlessness and, and looking at what the Scripture just had to say, you know, he says he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. What is the lie? It didn't say lies. It said the lie. What's the lie? What's the mystery of godlessness? What's the mystery of lawlessness? The lie is we don't need God. We can make our own law. We can make our own way. Now we are humanists. We are our own gods. And Satan's trick is he's going to start causing human beings and nations to see this and start believing in this. Now I'm going to go through some things with you. I want to look at the devil and take a little bit more in-depth look of who he is. And I just want to bring up some bullet points. We won't have to go real far deep into this. But just so you know who the enemy is and what he's like, I've brought up some things here that I've studied out about the devil over the years. First of all, he exists. In seven Old Testament books, he's brought up and every New Testament writer writes of him. He exists. Matthew 13, 39, Jesus himself taught about the devil. Also in Luke 10 and 8 and 11 and 18, he taught about Satan himself. Satan exists. Make no mistake about it. There is an all-powerful devil as far as evil goes. We're going to get into what Satan is. He is no match for God. He's a created being who was created by God. But he does exist. He is the head of all cherubim. He was the most powerful angel in heaven. And he was of the cherubim of angels. Demons are fallen angels beneath him. He has power and authority over them because he had power and authority over them in heaven. And he controls them. To go and confound the nations. There is angelic warfare going on. Demonic warfare. When I say demon, that's synonymous with the word angelic. 
There is angelic warfare going on. Beings that were created higher than humankind. They have more capability. They are creatures, yet they are spirits. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But they are created above you. They are more powerful than you. They can influence your thoughts. They can influence your life. They can influence people. Okay? Satan exists. That's number one. There is an an all-powerful demon. What is Satan's nature? He's a spirit being, and we talked about that. He's of the order of the angels called cherubim. In Ezekiel 28, 14, you'll find that. He's the highest of all created angelic creatures. Ezekiel 28, 12, you'll find that. Like we talked about. What's his personality traits? What's he like? He's a murderer. John 8 and 44. He is a murderer. He will take life at any chance he gets. You are created in the image and likeness of God, and he, he takes, there's nothing that brings him more pleasure than destroying your life or influencing you to destroy it yourself or influencing you to walk away from God to destroy your soul eternally and forever. He's a murderer. He's a liar. John 8, 44 describes him as a liar. He's also the father of all lies. And he's the father of all liars. Satan does not tell the truth in that, in that form and sense of the word. He's a liar. He wants to be God, so everything that he does is, is in direct opposition to God, but he acts like God and he's lying as if he is God. He's a sinner, 1 John 3 and 8. He's an accuser, an accuser of the brethren, Revelations 12.10. He likes to produce accusation against you. He likes to point the finger at you and condemn you. And he likes to accuse you before God. The Scripture says he stands in heaven constantly making accusation against believers. Can you believe that? Satan in heaven making accusation? Yes, that's right. That's what the scripture says. And that would look like this. God, look at Rich today. I thought you said he was a believer. I thought you said he was redeemed, a follower of Christ. Did you not just hear what he said? Did you not just see what he did? That's what he does. And Jesus, who is your intercessor, stands between you and the devil and God. And he says, but that is my child, Father. Bought in the blood, imperfect, but washed in the blood. I'll correct him, Satan. No human's perfect. Oh, but look at Shelley. But what about her? Look what she did. Constant accusation. Constant accusation. In the book of 1 Peter 5 and 8, it calls him an adversary. He's your chief adversary. Besides yourself, 
He's the one who will fight ultimately against you all the time. That's what He lives for, is to be your adversary, to put roadblocks in front of you, to keep you from achieving godliness, to keep you from getting close to Christ. He will throw, and it's amazing how that he, the, the effort that He has put forth to keep Christians from becoming the powerful entity that the church is able to be. He will throw everything in your way to keep you from achieving what Jesus Christ said you could be. Because He knows if that happens, it's the end of Him. And so He'll put this in front of you. This distraction, this thing, this sin, this emotion, this lust, this whatever. He'll keep piling it on you. He's got, listen, the Scripture says that we have angels assigned to us, right? Don't you think Satan has assigned some to you too? Because he absolutely does everything in contradiction to God. If you believe that you have angels assigned to you for your well-being, you better believe that Satan is there too. Trying to oppose everything you do. To make things go bad. We always look at the good side, but we never consider the opposite side of the coin. We want to think, well, there's always angels around us. But there's also bad ones around you all the time too. And the struggle for your soul is in, their, is in this epic cosmic battle. He's your adversary. Does he have any limitations? He's a created creature, which means he's not omniscient. Omniscient means all-powerful, all-knowing. Omniscient is hand in hand with omnipresent, which means he can. God is omniscient, all powerful. He's also omnipresent. God is everywhere all the time. He has no limitations. God is and forever will be unlimited power. Unlimited power. He is. 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, He is however far we have ahead of us. He always has been. Imagine this. God has never been born. There was never a start date to God because He always has been. That is unfathomable to the human mind. He's never had a start date. And He will never have an end date. So how old is God then? Forever. So do we think that, you know, then, then it begs the question when you start thinking on those kind of terms, then you start thinking outside the box and you start thinking, well, is this the only world, this 5,000, 6,000 year old world, is this the only one in the timeline of an infinite God? Do you think that maybe there could have been others? Other worlds? Other peoples? Other times? Other places? Could there be? If God is always has been, is He limited to this little atmosphere that we know as space? Could there be? Now you're thinking. We think, and we're only, you know, in the imagination of mind, we press outward, but we only are shown our existence because that's what matters to you right now. Your redemption and justification is what's at hand. He can be resisted. 
by Christians. James chapter 4 verse 7. James tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. You have the power because of the authorization of Christ to stand against the devil. The most powerful angelic being ever created. You have the ability to ward him off with the name of Christ Jesus. Do you understand now why it took the second person of the Holy Trinity to come down and make redemption happen? So if we're thinking, if Satan was the highest order of creation, the most powerful angel, well then there wasn't an angel to do it, right? Because everything's beneath him. That wouldn't work. It would take God Himself to come down and overcome this. Someone that's not beneath that order. So when the Scripture tells us that it sent the best that heaven had, that the Lamb of God, it was only appropriate that Jesus Himself, the Son of the living God, was to come and make redemption happen. Because Satan was the next thing after the Holy Spirit. As far as powerful created beings goes. And the Holy Spirit and the Trinity of God, His work is not the redemptive work. Satan's judgments. In Ezekiel 28.16, he was cast out of his original position in heaven. It says that God cast him out. In Eden, in in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God pronounced judgment on him because he said that Jesus would come and stomp his head and he would bruise his heel. So from the very beginning of time, Satan, who within his own self, knows that God can never be wrong, knew that his time was limited. But what does Satan do? Even though Satan knows God, if you look at the pride of Satan who thought that he could become God, there's always this inkling in Satan's mind that he thinks that he can thwart the plan of God. He knows he can't keep the plan of God from beginning to happen, but just as he tried to, and we'll cover this in a minute, just as he tried to thwart Jesus' mission, he knew that Jesus would come. It's just, okay, when he gets here, I'll overcome him. He's always got a plan to try to thwart God's plan that he knows he can't stop. Okay? He was judged on the cross. John chapter 12, verse 31. He was cast out. He will be cast out in the middle of the tribulation period. Revelations 12, verse 13. He will be cast out. Confined in the abyss at the beginning of the millennium. Revelations 20, verse 2. At the thousand year reign, he'll be cast down and out of his realm of being able to interfere. Finally, he'll be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. Revelations 20, verse 20. He'll be cast out forever. His judgment will be set and done. Never again will the world have to deal with this rebellious cherubim. 
So what's the work of the devil? And this is what I really wanted to get to when it comes to describing Satan. First thing that he did in the New Testament was he tempted Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. So here again, he knew the Messiah would come because it was predicted in Eden that he would come. And so he thought, okay, I'll try to thwart the Messiah. I'm going to tempt him. So immediately Jesus was led up into the wilderness where he went into temptation, the Scripture says. What did Satan do? He tried to tempt him in every way possible to try to thwart the mission of Jesus and to try to get Jesus to pay more attention to his humanity than his mission and his godliness. This is how he gets people. He will always try to use your fallen nature or your flesh to try to get you out of what Christ wants you to do, even on our level. Oh, he'll give you a new job because that's money. He'll give you entertainment. He'll give you the lust of this. He'll give you the lust of that. He'll give you vacations. He'll give you, he'll give you all these things. And He'll offer them to you. It, you might not be standing like Jesus was looking at Him and He's showing you the things of the world, but in your life, these things happen to you. And what happens when you go back in the, in the course of your life and you look back on things, you go, oh my God, what other things could I have been doing knowing that God had a mission for me? What other things could I have accomplished for God if I wasn't there and I wasn't doing that and I wasn't here and I wasn't tied up with that? Well, you want to know what that was. That was you in your wilderness giving in to what Satan was presenting you. Because we're human and we fail. But Jesus had to, with His godliness, overcome His humanity. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's the whole, the whole reason for our redemption is Jesus overcame the flesh. Now that you're saved, you're supposed to be overcoming your flesh. You're supposed to be using that new godly nature, Jesus within you, the Holy Spirit within you, to overcome this stuff that keeps setting you back. That's what you're supposed to do. But you don't, you don't know it because Satan is such a trickster and he's so undercover and he's, and, and, you know, he's, he, he's so uh, hidden that you have these grandiose ideas and something really that you're passionate about comes along and you know it's a passion within your heart you need to examine that stuff what's it doing to you can you control it can you have these in your life without them pulling pulling you away from god can you have passions that are of this world yes you can you can have things that you love that you love to do love to hunt love to fish love to do all but do they take me from god that's the question i remember when i first got saved God took hunting away from me because I was so passionate about it. There was a period of roughly 10 years that I never hunted at all. I had to sacrifice it to God. And just like God did Abraham, when Abraham had his son Isaac laying on the table and he was getting on the altar and he was getting ready to, getting ready to, to execute the sacrifice, God stopped him. I see that you'll do it for me. And he released me from that. And I remember the first time that I went back, it was like, man, God, thank you so much. This means something totally different to me. This is so much better for me now. 
It's, it doesn't control me. It doesn't. God sees that I'd give it for him. See. And God might ask you to do a sacrifice like that. Take the thing that you're most passionate about. Can you give it up? Can you stop it for God? If he asked it of you? Or does it control too much of your heart? He's a tempter. That's what he does. Satan will always use various people to try to thwart the work of Jesus. You find us in Matthew 2 and 6, John 8 44, Matthew 16 23, just to name a few. He's always going to use people. There's two things that Satan will use that you need to watch out most for that's pleasures. And passions and people. He'll use people to come against you, to try to hurt you, and to try to lead you away. And he'll use passions and pleasures to try to captivate your heart and own you. Listen to me when I say this to you once again. Satan will use two things people. Passions and pleasures to try to get you. Is there people you shouldn't be around? Is there people that hurts your, your uh, witness for Christ? Is there people that causes you to give up your godly nature to be with them? Is there people that would draw you away because you respect them and look up to them and, but they're wicked? Are those the people that takes you to places that you shouldn't go, but you sacrifice your godliness to do it? Whew, that's the devil. That is the devil to a T. I can hear his hiss as I say it. Listen to this. He possessed Judas's body for the betrayal. If you read that story in John 13, verse 27, you start reading that, you will see that Judas became possessed. Jesus talked right to the devil, said, go on and do what you're going to do. He took over Judas's will. Judas was already a willing subject. He was already fallen in his mind and in his nature and in the way that he thought. And he was really never a part of Jesus's group. He was there, but, you know, like a lot of people come to church, but they're not really a member of the church. They're just here in the church. And boy, let me tell you, in, in, in the other church I pastored, we were full of Judas's. My goodness gracious, that place was packed full of snakes. There were people in there that would come to church for years and wasn't saved, but would create havoc any chance they could. You'll find as you read through the Gospels that Judas, oftentimes Jesus, Jesus had to correct him because he was so worried about the money. So worried about the money. I'm really glad our church doesn't hardly have any because we ain't got nothing to argue about. I don't know if our church brings in enough money to be able to buy my dog dog food after we got the bills paid. And trust me, he's getting to the point where he needs a lot of dog food. 
But if you read this, Judas was possessed by Satan. Satan wanted to thwart Jesus' mission. What about in relation to nations, countries, peoples? The Revelations 20 and 3 says he is at work deceiving them now. And finally, he'll gather them together for war, Armageddon, Revelation 16, 13 and 14. Satan himself causing people to hate people to come against themselves and destroy themselves. For the sake of money and power. How about in relation to unbelievers? The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 that Satan blinds their minds. It's unbelievable to me. It's hard to understand, I should say, how people cannot see what's going on in our country right now. I can't get it. How do you not see it? You know, I, I, I felt sorry for Giuliani. I mean, he got, he got up in front of all, those, all the reporters and he goes, what does it take for you to investigate this and see the truth? What does it take? And it's like, it was almost like I could hear this music playing that they play that Arabic kind of music that's got that apocalyptic sound and it's like it was like it was like being in the in the middle of the the left behind movies or something it was like instantaneously he was talking to people that had been like Satan was in the background and he waved his hands like this and it just stood there like this and they never heard a word he said you remember that scene in Left Behind? How many people in here have seen Left Behind? Okay, Tom, Julie, you guys seen it? Okay, Tom, we're going to watch that together one night. But there's this scene, remember? When they pray at the very end, they had the armies there and they were blocking them off to get back to where the two, um, the two uh, prophets were at. Okay, And all of a sudden, this woman shows up, this angel, she's like... Oh, oh, oh. That might be some show. I don't know. But she's singing this music like that. And then all of a sudden, them soldiers stop. That's what the press looked like. And it was like they walked right in amongst them. And, and the soldiers never seen them. And then all of a sudden, they get back to where the prophets was at. And they went, and this Aramaic music started playing. No, that's not that song. That's what it felt like when I was watching this and they were just stunned. And then they went on asking questions again. Amazing. People's blinded eyes to obvious truth. My goodness, it was unbelievable. Um, he snatches the words from unbelievers' hearts, Luke 8 and 12. You tell them the Gospel, and it's like Satan swoops in and takes it from them. I've always said the doors of the church are like erasers. People come in to hear the word, but then when they, they hear the word, they go out, the doors close and whoosh, erases it right off their heart and they go right back to living how they used to. Unaffected by their visit to the house of God. He, he uses men to oppose the work of God. Revelations 2 and 13. He uses people to oppose what God wants to get done. How about in relation to Christians? 
He attempts the lie, Acts 5 and 3. He hinders and slanders them, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 18. He employs demons to try to defeat them, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. He tempts Christians to go into immorality, 1 Corinthians 7 and 5. He sows weeds amongst the believers, Matthew 13 38 and 39. What that means is he'll bring people into the assembly who are not believers and sows them amongst you so that they try to split you up and create an atmosphere in which you can't grow properly. They take all the nutrients from you and just leave you with nothing. And instead of being a big, beautiful wheat field or corn field, nice and green and lush and full of fruit, you're this old, haggard, Charlie Brown Christmas tree. I was in that play when I was a kid. I forget what my role was, but I was in that. He incites persecutions against believers. Revelations 2 verse 10. Satan is in charge of inciting persecution. That's what he does. To try to, if he can't defeat you in your lusts and in your passions and with people like this, then he will persecute you to try to get you to not believe. So then what's my defense against the devil? You have the present intercessory work of Jesus in John 17, 15. Jesus intercedes for you. Call upon His name. You have to stay spiritually on guard. 1 Peter 5 and 8. You have to stay spiritually on guard. You have to protect yourself and be on the lookout. How do I stay on the lookout as a Christian spiritually? How do I do that? What am I looking for? What, what, how do I look for something I can't see? Stay, stay read up in the Scripture. Stay close to Christ in prayer so that God will make you alert to things as they come along. Develop your spiritual discernment you all have discernment. The Scripture says, My people will know My voice. What that is actually saying is after you're saved, you are given the gift of discernment. Discernment means you should be able to tell what is Christ-like and from God, God versus what's from the devil. If you can't, there's something wrong with you. You need to get fixed. Because that is a gift that you get from Christ upon salvation. You should be able to smell evil. You should be able to detect it. You should be able to have your sensors go off and go, yeah, that don't sound right to me. I'm feeling something. I'm vibing on that. You should be able to do that. Some of you, maybe you've not been working too much on that. But you need to work on that. To develop your spiritual discernment. To tell what's good and what's evil. You should know that because evil can be very deceptive and hard to understand and see with your physical eyes. That's why the Bible says that Jesus had no comeliness. He was basically an ugly man. But you felt His love and His Spirit. Whereas Satan, when he comes, will be a great orator and he'll be something to behold. He'll have that smile that Shelley says goes 
Ding. When people sees him, he has the Joel Osteen look to him. Clean cut, got his stuff together, tells you something, you just think you should believe it just because look at him. Okay? And finally, the believer needs to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11-18. Put your armor on. You might as well sleep in it these days because I'm telling you, every day of your life, He's coming. There's no time to turn your back on the devil because the armor is not made for the back to protect the back. It's made for the front. Attack him and stand against him and he'll flee from you. If he sees you running, he's got high prey drive and he'll chase you down. You ever notice how a dog will do that? A dog, when you stand against him, he'll, he'll back up. But the minute you turn and run, he's going to run and tackle you. That's exactly how the devil is. You stand against him, he'll flee. But if you turn your back on him, he's going to hunt you down. You can't outrun the devil. My old pastor taught me that. He said, son, let me tell you something. If you ever hear anything I ever teach you, don't ever run from the devil. He said, because he'll be at the next place you go to, waiting on you with a whole new set of problems. Can't run from him. There's no destination that he's without, that he can't get to. In the hills of Kentucky, in the middle of nowhere, he's there. He'll come to visit. And he already has several different ways. People ain't got no teeth. That's another subject. That went over your guys' head, I think, but that's... At any rate, stand with me.